Come follow me, the Savior said, then let us in his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we be one with God's own This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, a weekly podcast dedicated to my musings and observations on the New Testament and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I will be using the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more content, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Hey guys, welcome back. We are on episode 17, and this is April 29th through May 5th, John 7 through 10, I am the Good Shepherd. And before we get started, I want to say hey to all those who are listening who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I didn't think that there were very many of you out there that were listeners that were not members of my church, but I was actually at a librarian's training meeting today um, for my school. And one of the other librarians was like, hey, I really like your podcast. And I kind of did a double take, like, you listen to to my podcast, but you're not a member of my church. She's like, nah, but I, you know, I like learning about things. I like learning about other religions. So, you know, I listen to your podcast. I was like, okay, well, good to know. Um, So... (laughs) Yeah, so shout out to all those who are not members of my church but are still listening to this. I hope you are getting something out of it. And if you do have questions at any time about um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormons, as you might have known us, um, we're actually trying to stay away from that nickname. But if you have questions at any time, feel free to reach out to me either on Facebook or through um, email. You can email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. And I'll answer any questions you might have about our church or our faith or anything that I I can, you know, help you with. All right, so we are jumping into Lesson 17, and I'm actually really excited this week. Um, I really enjoyed the scripture reading. Of course, you know, it's always an interesting experience to me whenever we jump into John, because we've been spending so much time in Matthew and Luke, and those guys are like really literal, like this happened, so this happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and it's just like, you know, like reading a storybook. Well, John, I always kind of just fall in head first and I'm like okay I am not in the shallow end of the swimming pool anymore like this is a whole lot deeper there's lots of symbolism and lots of doctrine and so John's always a different experience to me reading John than it is reading like Matthew or Luke or the other gospels so I really really enjoy John but the first thing I want to say before we jump right into come follow me is there is a painting at the beginning of the come follow me lesson it's a Liz Lemon Swindle painting and I love Liz Lemon Swindle she's one of my favorite artists. And this painting is so heartbreakingly gorgeous. Um, Go check it out. It's painting of the woman taken in adultery. You've got the woman and she's on the ground and like she's got her head turned away from like all the men who are shouting at her. And you've got Jesus there and he's kneeling down next to her and he's drawing on the ground, you know, like they, they say in the scriptures. And he's got his hand up against his mouth. Like he's just kind of appalled by the whole scene. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what all was actually going on there and why he probably looked so appalled. Oh, it's just, it's a beautiful painting. There's so much emotion in it. And it really helped bring the story alive even more than, I mean, I already felt really deeply about this story, but it helped bring it even more alive for me this week. So definitely go check that painting out. It's gorgeous. He That Is Without Sin by Liz Lemon Swindle. All right, so moving on. Guys, 
This week on this episode is another perfect time for us to sister frizzle it up. So we are going to sister frizzle in the magic scripture bus. We are going to jump into the chapters of John. What I really want to kind of take you guys through on our magical field trip with the magical scripture bus is the Feast of Tabernacles. And we read in John 7, um, it starts out in John in John 2, he says, Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And in John 7, 3 through 10, it kind of talks about like Jesus and his disciples kind of going back and forth because the disciples are like, hey, you're having lots of like success and um, why don't you go ahead and come to the Feast of Tabernacles? It'll be a really great place for you to like come and spread your message and everything like that. Jesus is kind of like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. And then he kind of secretly like goes into the Feast of Tabernacles. There's been lots of speculation out by various biblical scholars on why it happened this way. But and then this explanation seems to make the most sense to me is that Christ knew that the Pharisees and the Jewish elders were plotting his demise, that they were plotting his death. And he knew that walking into the Feast of Tabernacles with like a big crowd that had been following him around, if he took this big crowd and like walked into the Feast of Tabernacles, that it would have caused a big scene and maybe his message wouldn't have been heard because the Pharisees might have like scurried him out of there, like, you know, try and get get rid of him. Um, Whereas if he kind of snuck in, hidden, and was able to kind of like quietly teach a crowd in the temple, the Pharisees may not catch on that he's there quite so quickly. Of course, they do catch on that he's there, and there are several interchanges that we see throughout the chapters this week. But So I think that's kind of what was going on, is he didn't want to walk into this big festival with like a giant posse of people. He wanted to just kind of quietly sneak in. So that's what I think was going on in John 7, 3 through 10. But so Feast of Tabernacles. All right, we are off the scripture bus here. We have stepped off into Jerusalem, um, or the city of God, as it is called there um, by some in the Jewish faith. We are looking around. The Festival of Tabernacles is a really interesting festival, and it's one of those things that I think... I would really have been into at this time. Um, You know, I love some Halloween. I love some Christmas. And it's not because of the presents or the candy, because yes, I love that too. But I just love the feeling of togetherness. I love the lights. I love just the sights and sounds and the smells of the season. And if we go in and we actually look at the Feast of Tabernacles, the different things that they had going on, there's a lot of sights and smells and like family gathering that I could see being very sentimental to me. And, um, I could just see myself really getting into this. Okay. And so the feast of tabernacles, what it was is they would come together. It's also known the Hebrew word for it is Sukkot. So the Sukkot, um, the festival of Sukkot, it's kind of like the, you know, you have the Passover on one end of things and then you have the Sukkot kind of ending the year. There's a website called Israel, my glory, which is done by a nonprofit group that is, kind of trying to help out Jewish Holocaust survivors. And one of the ways that they do that is they build bridges between Judaism and Christianity. And so they have Christian pastors who volunteer for this nonprofit. They kind of come together and they kind of explain, along with the Jewish elders, kind of some of the things that the Jews believe about Jesus and the Bible and kind of like the different traditions, Jewish traditions that happen in the Bible and to kind of like explain what was going on to like their Christian brothers and sisters. So it's a really cool website, Israel My Glory. But they have this whole section on Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, and I'm going to post this to my Facebook and to my blog. You can go look at it. They say the Feast of Tabernacles during the time of Jesus was full of pageantry fueled with great expectation. I mean, that sounds like Christmas to me. It was the season of rejoicing because Jewish people believed the promise of the Messianic kingdom actually could be fulfilled during this time. The Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot 
mark the end of the religious calendar year that started in the spring of Passover. Okay, so you got Passover on one end of the year and Sukkot on the other end of the year. Okay, God's grand work, which began with the Passover and its redemption story, culminated with Sukkot and its theme of restoration. So perfect time for Christ to talk, right, in a festival of restoration. It was the seventh and final God-ordained observance, as recorded in Leviticus 23. And it was also the third and final annual feast that required Jewish men to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And that's in Deuteronomy 16.16. Okay, so as we are exiting the scripture bus and we are walking into the Festival of Tabernacles or Sukkot, there are three themes that I want you to be looking for as we talk about the scriptures that took place during the Festival of Tabernacles. Okay, and so these three themes are refreshment, rejoicing, and restoration. And how the events of the Festival of Tabernacles coincide with the events that happened in the scriptures and also the teachings that Christ had about, you know, how we can be refreshed in Christ and how we can rejoice in Christ and how he can restore us to our Heavenly Father. So those are three themes that I want you to be looking for. So we're going to start off with the first theme, which is refreshment. And we see this in John seven thirty seven, In that last great day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. This is really an interesting saying because they, water played a huge part in the Festival of Tabernacles. Oh, but I'm getting ahead of myself in our little tour of the Festival of Tabernacles. Um, we're going to actually start like when you first enter into the festival area. So under the theme of refreshment, here we go. So when you first walk into Jerusalem, you're either going to stay with friends and family, but this is also a really welcome time in Jerusalem, so you could actually probably stay with strangers. Lots of people were being very hospitable to strangers even. Um, and so you find a little area, and you make a camp, okay? And so you build like a little tent, and this is because that's why it's called the Festival of Tabernacles, because when the children of Israel were in the desert, you know, they build tabernacles. These were basically tents that they built. And so during the Festival of Tabernacles, it was sometimes called the Festival of Booths because everyone builds a little booth for their family, right? So you can imagine looking out over Jerusalem and finding like all these little tents and booths that have been put up like in the streets and around the different houses. Like there's all these little booths. They're called Sukkot. Is, so that's where it, the whole festival name comes from. All these little Sukkots are like out there everywhere, okay? And they're similar to the type farmers lived in during the annual grape and olive harvest. So for an agricultural community, they'd be very familiar to how to build one of these little Sukkots. Okay, they were constructed from willow and olive branches. And then they decorated them with grapevines and fruit to kind of make it pretty, right? And so these, this is where I can see myself getting into it because, you know, I love decorating for holidays. I love decorating for Halloween. I love decorating for, you know, Easter, for Christmas and all that stuff. So I'm like imagining myself putting like grapevine and fruits and stuff up around the side of my little Sukkot, kind of like how I drape like, you know, garland and stuff around my house for Christmas. So I can kind of see myself doing that. They could find these items, willow, olive branches, grapevine fruit. They could find all of this there in the Kidron Valley where they were, okay? It was just east of the city of Jerusalem. And they were, these little Sukkot, the booths, they were built to be sturdy and shady because they had to last all week. The festival of booths or tabernacles ran from one Sabbath to the other Sabbath. So it was seven days with sandwiched in between the Sabbaths, right? I guess one of the Sabbaths technically was part of the seven days. So six days sandwiched between two Sabbaths, right? And some of the places that they liked to put up these little Sukkots were um, rooftops and courtyards, streets, 
pretty much anywhere you could find space and you weren't in the way, you put your tent there, right? Um, And inside these little tents, there were comfortable cushions for reclining. And usually they had a triclinium, which is like a little low three-sided table that you could like recline around while you were eating. Um, And they only used the best bowls and cups during mealtime. They brought out the fine china. I don't know that they necessarily had china, but you know... If if they had china, they would bring it out. Like, if they had really nice bowls and cups, they would bring that out, okay? And they used oil lamps to provide necessary light. Then they constructed lulavs, okay? And a lulav was assembled by tying together a palm, a myrtle, and a willow branch. And you tied them all together. And the local Jerusalem custom was to tie them together using a golden thread. And then they would carry them around these fragrant lulavs. I guess they smelled really good because of the myrtle um, in their hands. And then they carried a lemon-like citrus fruit in their left hand. And at appropriate times during the ceremonies and the festivals and stuff, they would wave these around. And it was supposed to symbolize thankfulness to the Lord. Okay, so you've got your sukkot set up. You've got your little lulav in your hand. And you're walking around the Festival of Tabernacles. You're seeing people you haven't seen all year. You're seeing family you haven't seen all year. The kids are playing. I mean, can you see how fun this would be? Like, I think this sounds like really fun. I, I want to go to a Festival of Tabernacles now. But a big part of the Festival of Tabernacles was each morning there was a water drawing ritual. And so what would happen during this water drawing ritual? And this is where we kind of get into the theme of refreshment, okay? Jesus being the living water, that kind of thing. So, standing at the top of the southwest corner of the Temple Mount, there was a priest, and he'd blew, he'd blow the shofar, which is a ram's horn, like trumpet type thing. And so he'd blow it with all his might, right? And it would announce the start of the festival. And then a priest exited the water gate on the south side of the main temple building, and he would carry a golden pitcher, so a bright, shiny pitcher. And then he would lead a joyous musical procession to the Pool of Siloam in the old city of David. So they're marching through the streets, following this priest who's carrying the golden pitcher. And at the pool, he plunges the pitcher into the water, and then he recites from Isaiah, Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. That's Isaiah 12:3. And then the crowd would kind of chant along with him, and accompanying the chant was the sweet sound of an instrument called the reed flute of Moses. This whole part of the celebration was important because Jerusalem's sole water supply was from this pool, and the Gihon Spring that feeds it. Therefore, the water was precious, so when Christ stands up and says, I'm the water of life, you know, people are kind of reflecting back on this water ceremony that happens every morning, okay? When asked why the ritual was called the drawing out of water... The priest told the people it was because of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. The water symbolizes the Holy Spirit, the only true source of life. And after the temple was destroyed, the rabbis reflected on the celebration and said, He who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. That's from the Talmud. And that quote that I just read came from came from the Israel My Glory site um, that talks about the Feast of Tabernacles here. All right, so then after this water festival or water drawing, right, the priest returns to the temple with a golden pitcher full of water, and he's joined by another priest who is carrying the drink offering of wine. So they've got a pitcher of water and a pitcher of wine. The shofar, which is that ram's horn again, was blown three times. And together, those two priests went up the ramp to the great altar, and then they poured both of those liquids into silver funnels. Okay, And during this ritual, while all this was going on, the people gathered together at the temple's court, and the women were singing. And they were singing a praise called Halal, which is based on Psalms 113 through 118. 
And the Levites standing in the 15 semicircular stairs in the court also sang, and they played musical instruments. So everyone's getting together while the priests are pouring the stuff on the altar, and there's music, and there's dancing, and people are singing. And so it's the mixture of water and wine at the altar symbolize the life and joy associated with the Holy Spirit. So it's the first thing that happens in the morning, and you've got people running around singing and following the priests. You've got musical instruments going on. What a great way to start your day. It's like one big, giant beautiful rejoicing um, party to get your day started. And I think that's really neat. Um, That's a really cool way to start your day. It reminds me a lot, actually, of girls camp. If you've ever been to girls camp and everyone gets up and they get out of their tent and they're sleepy and they brush their teeth or whatever and they do breakfast and then they all gather together for announcements and they sing the little announcement song. I don't know if your announcement song is the same as our announcement song, but our announcement song is like announcements, announcements, announcements. Okay, yeah, so they do that. They do camp announcements. They sing a couple of songs together, and then they start their day. And it reminds me a whole lot of the water drawing ceremony that we have here because of the music and gathering and things like that. And so then after this, after they've they've had their party, several priests hold willow branches and they march around the great altar and they are reciting for all to hear, save now, I beseech thee, O Lord, O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. And that's from Psalms 118.25. And so following all this, then there is a great silence. Everyone goes completely quiet and everyone takes a moment to feel and listen to the wind and they reflect on the spiritual significance of the water in the wind. In Israel, my glory says they were expressing a desire for personal spiritual refreshment. Only God's spirit, symbolized by the water, could satisfy their thirsty souls. Finally, a benediction, a closing prayer, closed the celebration, and they all went home to gather under their Sukkot. The water ritual took place for each day for seven days. It's how they opened up the morning, right? And on the seventh day, it took on an intensity filled with excitement and anticipation. The last day of the feast was Hoshana Rabbah, I guess that's how you say it, the great praise day. This is when we think the incident that we see in John 7 took place, okay? So this is the last water drawing ritual that happened um, during this particular Feast of Tabernacles that Christ was at. Perhaps Jesus was seated near the water gate or somewhere in the court of women in the temple watching the final drama of the final water ritual, knowing that the Feast of Tabernacles was closing down, you know, for this day. And at the very moment when there was that silence where everyone listens to the wind and thinks about the water, everyone's being quiet and and thinking, perhaps it was then that he stood and he cried out, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. How perfect is that to go along with what just happened in the water ritual? Okay, he's talking, you guys are reflecting on water and how it gives you life and how it fills you and only water can satisfy your thirsty soul. Well, guess what, guys? I give you life. I can satisfy your thirsty soul. Come unto me and I will give you living water. And they could find their anticipated refreshment by accepting him who is the true and living water. And even today, his invitation is still genuine to come unto him and receive his living water. So that is the water ritual, and it kind of fills our theme of refreshment. So I think that was really cool to learn about this week. Um, And so I want to tell you about a few other things that happened during the Feast of Tabernacles. So the next theme I want to kind of look at is the theme of rejoicing. Because that, you know, we saw a little bit of that in the water ritual. That they were praising and singing and just, you know, rejoicing God for the goodness that he's given in their life. We look at John 8, 12 to start out this section. And it says, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. 
He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So, of course, we are going to talk about lights. And again, this part, it reminds me again of Christmas because it's like a festival of lights kind of thing. This is another fascinating ceremony that was associated with the Feast of Tabernacles. And um, each afternoon of the seven days, priests and pilgrims would gather at the Court of the Women. And in case you can't tell, um, the Court of the Women was really kind of like the social area of the temple. I would almost equate it to like the cultural halls in our chapels. Um, it's where everybody kind of gathered. It was the biggest part of the temple so everyone could really gather and sit around. Um, if you want a really good drawing of the temple, you can look up the book Sisters at the Well by Jenny and Richard Hopesopfel. Um, they do a really good job of describing the temple, describing the different parts of the temple and why the people would gather in these different parts, okay? So we are doing the Festival of Lights here um, in the afternoon at the Court of the Women, okay? And so they would make these big, large oil lamps, and they would light these oil lamps, and these oil lamps were really, really, really bright. It was said that the light from these lamps was so bright that you could see it anywhere in Jerusalem from where you were. You could see where the temple was because of this light. It was so bright. The women watched from the upper terraces, and the men of, and this is from the Mishnah Sukkot, the men of piety and good works used to dance before the oil lamps with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, while countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, trumpets, and instruments of music. And so that's the Mishnah Sukkot, which is apparently Jewish writings. Okay, And so these light festivities continued all night long until dawn. So... Like, again, it reminds me of like Christmas lights, right? So you had these lights that you could see wherever you were in Jerusalem. Whatever you were doing with your family, you could see the lights of the temple everywhere that you were. And how cool is that symbolism right there, right? But there was dancing and there was singing all night long. Um, there was music. And I mean, this almost sounds like Bonnaroo or like a big musical festival, but with like religious context instead of like, you know, the drugs and alcohol and music that you would associate with a music festival, right? And so from the illumination that we saw here in the temple, we can take two symbolisms from, all right? The first is the reality of that the light of all lights, what the Jews called the Shnechna glory, the visible presence of God that filled the first temple which Solomon had built, okay? And the second symbolism to the Jews was the Har Gadol, which is the great light, who would soon come and bring light to those who are spiritually dead and dwelling in darkness, as we read in Isaiah 9:12. Okay, so the light of all lights which, you know, from Solomon's temple, that's God, right? And then the second great light that they are looking for is the Messiah. And again, the Messiah who would come and bring light to those who are spiritually dead and dwelling in darkness, which is the perfect descriptor for Christ, but they didn't see that, okay? And so it's during this that Jesus was at the temple. And so possibly it was during the light celebration or when the lights were extinguished on that eighth day, that final day, you know, that he said for everybody who is there rejoicing and everything, he and maybe in a quiet moment, he said, I am the light of the world. You guys see these lights? I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Okay, how cool is that? I love it. He proclaimed two truths with the statement that he is the great light the prophet Isaiah said would come, and that he is God in the flesh and the glory of the temple. How cool is that? I love that with the rejoicing. Well, now the response was kind of uh, 
Some people rejected him. Some were like, okay, so who is this guy that's talking about light? And, you know, in 825, we see that they asked for some more information. And then others believed and received him, which we see in John 830. And the joy associated with lights and water rituals of the Feast of Tabernacles anticipated Jesus' coming and bringing light and life to a dark and sinful world. Beautiful. I love the rejoicing that went on and how we can look back at it when we have our big holidays like Christmas or things like that. And we see the lights to remember that they are symbolic of the one who brought light and life to a dark and sinful world. Okay, really cool. Okay, the next theme that I want to take on is restoration. And this is where we go into the story of the man who was blind and Jesus heals him in John 9. And John 9, 7 we read, and it said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his way, therefore, and washed, and he came back seeing. So in ancient times, like we're back here on our sister Frizzle field trip, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles was called the last good day. And <laughs> I can think of lots of times where I've been like, okay, this is the last good day. Tomorrow is something really stressful and hard. But um, the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles was the last good day. And so viewed as a Sabbath... It was a designed time to rest and reflect on the spiritual significance of what has just occurred over the last seven days. So it's, it's literally a day of rest, of quiet, you know, peace and contemplation. Um, I imagine after all that partying and dancing and singing and everything, you were probably ready for some quiet time, let's be honest. During this quiet time, the Sabbath, special activities took place at the temple. The priests offered daily and specific to the Sabbath special sacrifices that were detailed. You could see more in Numbers 28, 9 through 10. Some recited the Psalm 92, and that's the Sabbath song that anticipates the blessing of the Messianic kingdom. And so lingering in the hearts and minds of everyone, no doubt during this week-long celebration, was the expectation that at any moment God could establish the great Sukkot Shalom, which is the tabernacle of peace, which would come with the Messiah. And we know that in our hearts and our minds is where the tabernacle of peace is established, right? When Christ comes and he brings us that peace in our heart and our mind, then we are the embodiment of peace. We are a little tabernacle of peace. And so that's what the scriptures were talking about there. All right, so now the festivities have all concluded. Everyone's being quiet. They're being, you know, thoughtful. And Jesus comes again to the temple. And so everyone's sitting there, you know, they're kind of gathered around and you know, thinking about the relationship with their Heavenly Father, and Jesus comes to perform a miracle in front of all of them. And there's a man sitting there, and he's blind, and Christ walks up to him, and he spits in the ground, which, you know, I'm like, ew. But apparently there was some, like, I guess mystical, you know, the mysticism in the society, there was some mystical ingredient in spit that they thought could work different potions and spells and things like that. So he spat in the ground because, again, God is really good at using the culture and stuff that we are in to establish blessings in our lives. Spat in the ground, mashed it around with some the dirt and stuff and made clay, and then wiped it in the man's eyes. And then he tells the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam. And the blind men went and came back seeing. Jesus sent the blind man to that same pool that the priest with the golden pitcher had fetched water from every single day of the feast, okay? Jesus was teaching that it is the Holy Spirit, represented by water, and whom he alone can give, the Holy Spirit that Christ alone can give, that can open the eyes of all who are spiritually blind. And then on the, in verse 14 of John 9, it says, And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So that's how he gives us, he restores 
our sight um, in this dark and sinful world. He restores all of the pains and the things that are wrong, you know, the blindness that we have, the different infirmities. He restores that and makes that whole again. And so that was also a beautiful scene, I think, this week from the scriptures. Okay, so now that we had our little field trip out to the Festival of Tabernacles, let's jump right on into Come Follow Me. And the first section says, Jesus teaches at the temple, John 7, 14 through 17. We know that this is kind of at the beginning of the Festival of Tabernacles, right? Come Follow Me says, As I live the truths taught by Jesus Christ, I will come to know they are true. The Jews marveled that Jesus knew so much as he was not learned, see verse 15, at least not in the ways they were familiar with. In Jesus' response, he taught a different way of knowing truth that is available to everyone, regardless of education or background. And so what they're saying here is that the Jews, especially the Jewish elders, like they would study for years and years and years to know all the different laws of the prophets and the, you know, Torah and things like that to know it really well. And I mean, you think about like Saul before he became Paul, you know, he was under the instruction of Gamaliel and um, you just had to learn a lot, a lot, a lot. And so Jesus didn't have that background of years of study. He had knowledge from his heavenly father, right, instead, which is a whole lot better. Um, And so that same knowledge is available to us regardless of education or background if we come unto Christ. And so according to John 7, 14 through 17, how can you come to know that the doctrine Jesus taught is true? And how has this process helped you develop your testimony of the gospel? So let's revisit 14 through 17 real quick. And it says, Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. The Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? And Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. And 17, this is the real kicker here. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. And so that's really how we know you know, is this really truly from God when you live the doctrine or you live the commandment or you live the thing that has come by revelation or whatever it is and you see the results of it, if they're good, then yeah, it's from God, right? You can feel it. I'm thinking that this is actually in Come Follow Me for a very specific purpose because I think especially when I'm recording this is right before General Conference. This is April 5th that I'm recording this. And General Conference is going to be happening this weekend, and I'm so excited! Um, Because every time we have General Conference, there's always, especially now, there's so many different revelations and changes that come out. And so I think it's going to be more and more important than ever for us to know how we find truth and how we go about gaining testimonies of different revelation and different truths. Um, Because as the prophet comes out and says, hey guys, you know, I know you guys were going to three-hour church. We're cutting it back to two. We're doing this Come Follow Me program. Then how do we gain a testimony that's that's really what we're supposed to do? And in this case, Jesus is saying, if you want to know if it's from your Heavenly Father, follow it. Right? And if it feels right, then it's from your Heavenly Father. And so that's really what I found with the Come Follow Me program is it has totally brought me closer to my Heavenly Father. The study that I've been doing and just the delving into the scriptures and thinking about Christ and, you know, taking these words that I've read thousands of times in my life and making them real and how do I apply it to my life? And it's just, it's been a really wonderful experience. So I believe it really has to be from God because it's bringing me closer to Him and it's making me a better person. Yeah, I know the doctrine is true because I'm living it. And so... That was a really good moment in Come Follow Me this week. All right, up next. Okay, so this one is about the woman taken in adultery. Um, It's called The Savior's Mercy is Available to All. 
John 8, 2 through 11. And it says, when speaking about the Savior's interaction with the woman taken in adultery, Elder Dale G. Renlund said, surely the Savior did not condone adultery, but he also did not condemn the woman. He encouraged her to reform her life. She was motivated to change because of his compassion and mercy. The Joseph Smith translation of the Bible attests to her resultant discipleship. And the woman glorified God from that hour and believed on his name. And that's from John 8, 11 footnote C. Okay, so this part I have really struggled with because I want to keep this a family-friendly podcast. I don't want to go too graphically into any sort of detail, but I also think it's important to understand kind of some of the vibes and the themes and the things that were happening. You know, like like I just described all the really cool, fun stuff that was happening during the Feast of Tabernacles. There was some stuff that was happening during the scene that if we are not aware of like some of the Jewish traditions doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So if you actually can go in, I, I mentioned the book Sisters at the Well by Jenny and Richard Holtzoffel. They actually have a um, graphic, but it was like realistic graphic description of what is taking place during the scene. And I'm not going to go too graphically into it, except for to say that this woman, when she was found caught in adultery in the very act, it says, she was dragged by these Jewish elders into the court of the women in the temple. And there were some things that they did when they believed a woman was guilty of adultery there in the court of the women in the temple to shame and embarrass the woman, everything from exposing parts of her to making her drink a potion that was made out of dirt off of the temple floor. Um, also, you notice it takes two to tango when it comes to adultery, and you notice there's no guy around. And the book Sisters at the Well also mentions that sometimes when men wanted a divorce from their wife, they would purposely set this up to happen this way for the woman to get caught so that they would be brought and humiliated and just embarrassed in front of everyone and so that they would have reason to divorce her if not have her killed because that and we see in Deuteronomy 22 22 through 24 that it states that you know a woman caught in adultery shall be stoned to death which is why they were all picking up stones and they were ready to stone her right and so it's in the middle of this scene of a woman who is put through this torture and everyone's looking at her and she's surrounded by these men and just being humiliated for something that she has done. And it is in this moment that Christ is with her. And this is why I love the Liz Lemon Swindle painting so much because you can see this moment, you know, where she's trying to pull up the little sackcloth around herself and um, Christ is looking down on the ground and he's drawing in the dirt. And for the longest time when I was looking, you know, I didn't quite understand what was going on here. And I was like, why is Jesus drawing the dirt? Like I, again, my little mind, I tried to be like Jesus when I was little and I would actually go outside and draw in the dirt because Jesus did it. So it would be okay for me to go draw in the dirt too. So I would draw in the dirt all the time when I was little. But, um, I wondered a lot of times, I'm like, what is he writing? What is he drawing? Why is he doing this? And I realized, especially after seeing the Liz Lemon Swindle painting, and I even knew this, but it just made it more real when I saw that painting that he was literally trying to give that woman some semblance of dignity in the middle of a very undignified situation. You know, letting her cover herself back up, and he's, you know, I think in that painting especially, it shows the pain that he's feeling at her embarrassment and the indignity of what she's being put through, and just the pain of these awful, you know, evil men doing this to her. Yes, she did something wrong, but she did not 
deserve to die and to be just humiliated in this way. And he's just so upset, I can tell, in this painting. And I think, you know, our Savior, a lot of times, when we do something wrong, you know, we suffer for the consequences of it. I think sometimes it hurts him to see that and, you know, we come to him and he can make it better. At that point, the Pharisees and the scribes that are gathered around, they ask Christ, this woman has taken adultery, should we stone her? And they know that this is a trick question because if he stones her, then he's carrying out capital punishment under the law of Moses. But the Romans would not be happy about this because they don't want people dying on their watch, right? It's against the law to kill people there in ancient Israel under the Roman rule. But if he refuses to have her stoned, then he's not obeying the law of Moses. So it's a catch-22. Either you're going to make the Romans mad or you're going to, you know, disobey the law of Moses. And so he answers them back perfectly. He who is without sin casts the first stone, right? So in that case, he has neither given them a yes or no, but he's letting them make the choice of whether or not they're going to deliver this capital punishment of stoning this poor woman to death. And so that's when they all kind of drop their stones and they kind of walk off and leave. And um, he has this moment alone with the woman. Yes, she made a bad choice. Definitely a bad choice. And I also, I kind of wonder, I'm like, okay, sister, Let's talk about this because you're in ancient Israel. You know the consequences for committing adultery. What were you thinking? Like, come on. Why would you ever do this if you know what's going to happen to you um, when you are caught? And I mean, come on, girl. I just, I want to, just want to shake her because I, I would not think anyone would ever do this. And, you know, I almost even wondered, I'm like, was this like, was it staged? Was she really in adultery? And the fact that Jesus had to forgive her sin makes me think that this was legitimate, like a consensual adultery situation kind of thing. So yeah, but I'm like, oh girl, like, what were you thinking? I just think this poor woman, but Jesus takes her and he lifts her up and, um, you know, he forgives her sin. And I think it's important for two reasons. I think this story is important is number one, when we are on the ground and when we have been humiliated and shamed, especially by others, I think Christ is there with us. And you know, there's consequences to sin. And yes, we have to live those through with their consequences of what we have done. Um, but when others are shaming us to the point where it's over, like they're missing the mark, they're doing it too much, you know, and we're really, really suffering beyond past what we should, Christ is there with us. And the other flip side of this is that he who is without sin cast the first stone. You know, don't humiliate and shame and hurt people who have done something wrong, who live differently from us, who choose to do things differently from us. You know, just love them. Love them. That woman did not need a stone in her face at that moment. She needed someone to love her and um, love them while they are coming back to Christ and seeking repentance and help them through that. Don't cast stones at them, basically, is what I learned from this lesson. So that was a really good scripture moment, I guess, for me. Going on with Come Follow Me, it says, when have you felt like the woman receiving mercy instead of condemnation from the Savior? Um, Every day, because... I am impatient. I am judgmental. I commit a hundred other little sins daily and my savior forgives those, right? Um, His atonement takes those on and makes them like they never even happened. So his great mercy. Um, When have you been like the scribes and Pharisees accusing or judging others, even when you are not without sin? Oh boy, a lot, a lot in my life. Um, The times I think in my life, especially that I've done this is when maybe I'm feeling insecure about things or something that I've done. And so I'm judging others for judging me, if that makes sense. Um, You know, I talk a lot about social anxiety 
And it's very easy for me sometimes, and I was way worse about this when I was younger than I am now. I'm a whole lot better about it now, but it was very easy for me, especially when I was like at wards and stuff in BYU to be like, uh, they're being snobby to me, so I don't have to be nice to them. They're being snobby. This ward is so rude. These people are so rude. I can't believe that they're so rude when really I was the one who was being rude, right? By being snobby and not being friends with them and judging them. So that's kind of a time where I felt like I've been kind of like the Pharisees. And as I said, I've gotten better as I've gotten older. Um, What else can you learn from the way the Savior interacted with the scribes and Pharisees and the woman caught in adultery? What do you learn about the Savior's forgiveness as you read these verses? The thing, you know, I keep going back to that painting of Christ just with his hand on his mouth, just looking so distraught. Because I think, you know, the sins that he's forgiving there are not only in the sins he's taking on, not only the woman's, but he's also taking on the sins of everybody standing in that circle holding stones. You know, he took on everyone's sin. Whether or not they want to accept his gift of repentance and come to him and be forgiven for those sins, he still took those sins on. And so the sins of those men standing there humiliating that woman and dishonoring her, um, he's taking that sin on as well. And, I mean, just his love and his mercy and how he must weep sometimes when he sees some of the things that we do to each other here on earth. That's really what I got out of this story was just how much he cares really for us and what we're going through and how much he loves us. So that's a really good testament to that. Okay, up next. I am so excited, guys, for this section. This is through our challenges, God can manifest himself in our lives. And this is the story of the man who was blind and Christ heals him. And he comes back and he's like, you know, giving testimony before the Pharisees and things like that. And so it talks about, you know, through our challenges, the works of God are made manifest. And so my friend Teresa agreed to give me an interview this week. Um, Teresa is an amazing woman. I really love Teresa a lot. I met her when I first came back from BYU to Huntsville, probably in about 2004. She moved in a couple years later, so it's probably closer to 2006 that I finally met her. You know, I was single. I was doing like the young single adult thing. I was in a really awkward and uncomfortable period of my life. Um, It was really awkward. And Teresa and her husband at the time, Chris, were the young single adult like as like leaders for us. And so, you know, we'd have break the fast at their house and things like that. And so Teresa taught me a lot about cooking. That's what I really remember about Teresa is um, even making pancakes. Like she taught me to sift the flour first. So I'd sift the flour first and before we would make the pancakes. And even, you know, I told her this when, when I went to go interview her and she was like, oh no, I need to give you the rest of the recipe because you have to, you know, whip the egg whites separately and then you have to put an atom into the yolks. And she knows so much about cooking and she's just amazing Um, and she's an amazing faithful woman and I loved her because when she was there as like a leader for us in the young single adults she was there for me during a time that was really just awkward for me in my life but she was always a quiet strong presence her husband Chris was really really outgoing and um, he was you know the one who kind of like led everything and kind of was life of the party and she was more on the sidelines but she was just strong you know, strong and silent is a way, really good way that I would say to describe her. Well, about a year and a half ago, I'm sorry that I'm getting teary. A year and a half ago, Chris died and he passed away from cancer. My testimony has grown watching Teresa come back from that. She's still so strong, but she's not silent anymore. And she even says in the in the interview, you're going to hear her talk about it, um, how his passing has forced her to kind of come out of her shell and, you know, really get to know people and be part of the mid-singles program there at church. And, um, it's something that even like my mom and I have talked about because we noticed we're like, Teresa is really getting out there and getting to know people. And, 
Um, she's spreading her light with others. And so coming away from the death of her husband to spreading that light with others is really a way of making God's works manifest. You know, taking this really horrible challenge and a really hard trial in her life and, you know, finding that light and holding on to that light and just choosing to see love as she works through it. She's a huge inspiration to me. So that's why I asked her to do the interview for this part of this week's Come Follow Me. So here she is, Teresa. Teresa, welcome to The Savior Said. Guys, I'm so excited to introduce you to Teresa. And she's going to talk to you a little bit about through our challenges, God can manifest himself in our lives. So Teresa, what would you like to tell us about that? I have been through some challenges. So I thought this was a section that would make sense for me to talk about. And my challenge is that I'm a widow, and that happened a year and a half ago. In the story, it talks about they asked if the person had done something wrong to become blind, or his parents had done something wrong. And that never would have occurred to me that Mm -hmm. my husband did something wrong. Not at all. Or I did something wrong. (laughs) He was the nicest guy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that... I think that's kind of weird that people thought that, but I do think that there is some kind of, maybe I could have been better if I had only followed the commandments better or prayed more or fasted more, maybe I would have received a miracle. And that didn't happen for me. I didn't receive a miracle in that way. But I feel like sometimes when we go through challenges, they help us grow in a way that we never would have otherwise. And I think, you know, we see that, especially in his story where, you know, when they ask him, why was this man born blind? And they said, so the works of God could be made manifest, you know, through, through his situation. Um, I also think sometimes we ask that question, why did this happen? Or, you know, could I have done this more? Because then we have control over the situation where a lot of times, like Chris's situation, there wasn't much control there, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. What were some things that you learned, especially about your heavenly father as you've gone through these challenges? Well, I learned that he loves me. Not that I didn't know that before, but now it's so much more obvious in the ways that he has blessed me. I thought, wow, that I never would have known this without having to go through this challenge in the first place. I wouldn't have received this extra reassurance that heavenly father loves me and he's actually looking after me. And there were some specific blessings that he's given me since Chris died, that it's obvious that Heavenly Father was behind it all. You know, and I think it's cool that he has done it in a way that it is obvious to me. It's not just a coincidence or maybe it's maybe that's evidence or maybe not, I'm not sure. It's so direct and so specific that I know for sure that it was Heavenly Father working in my life. Would you give us an example of one of those? Well, I, I can give you one. I sold my house last year and I moved into a new house. And I wasn't planning to sell my old house until after I moved into the new house. I just thought that'll be easier with the logistics. And one day my builder of my new house asked me why I hadn't put my house on the market yet. I realized that was Heavenly Father speaking to me saying, it's time to put your house on the market, don't Mm -hmm. wait. Yeah. And so I put my house on the market and it ended up, I closed on my house the exact same day that I was able to move into my new house. Oh, that's perfect. And it, it wouldn't have been the exact same day if it wasn't Heavenly Father. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was like, he's like showing me 
look at this, look what I can do. I can make it all happen just the way, you know, just like magic. Oh, to make it work for your good, right? Yeah. It makes everything work for our good. What were some other ways you saw some of his tender mercies over the past year and a half? Or even before that too. Okay, so one one example before that is about two or three weeks before Chris passed away, um, we didn't know yet that he was terminal. Mm-hmm. And my parents and and myself, we had already planned this beach vacation. And we were still, it was still a go. We were still planning to do it. And they were in Arkansas, where my uncle lives. And they were going to leave that morning to come to our house to pick us up to go to the beach. And about an hour after they left my uncle's house, they had car trouble. And they had to return to my uncle's house. And it took four days to repair the car. Yeah. And that same week was a huge storm. Mm -hmm on the Atlantic coast. Okay. And so the hotel ended up being closed anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So it's going south. So they're not here. And I already was taking the time off work. And Chris went and got some tests. And that's when he found out that he was terminal. And actually, he got the call from the doctor the evening my parents arrived here. Oh, wow. So they were sitting with us in our living room Mm -hmm. when Chris got the call. And you know, that's amazing. You had that support there. Yeah. From your father in heaven, but also your parents here on earth. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's a huge set of coincidences mm-hmm. all coming together at once. That's not a coincidence. It's no, God, it's right? Not, that's right. It's Heavenly <laughs> Father working for your good. That's right. That's awesome. Oh, good. Well, how has your testimony strengthened you as you've gone through this? Or how has it strengthened after going through this? Both. So my testimony has got stronger because I know Heavenly Father has my back, because I've been praying a lot more, you know, for comfort and guidance mm-hmm. and all those things you pray for, and He's there. And I see it, and I feel it, and I know it, and it's, I don't doubt it at all. So my, my testimony has grown stronger because of my relationship with my Heavenly Father has grown stronger. But also, um, my testimony of the plan of salvation has increased significantly. I would imagine so. Yes. I have a celestial marriage and mm-hmm. I always knew that, but it means so much more now because mm-hmm. now I know that I'll see my husband again and you know, we'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And before I knew that, but it didn't mean as much. And now you have that blessing to lean on. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that. Teresa gave a wonderful talk in Sacramento meeting. And so I've read the talk and it's amazing. What were some things that people have done to help strengthen you over the past year and a half? I think the most important thing is that people love me. They make sure that I know that they love me. They give me hugs, they call and check on me, they ask how I'm doing and they really mean it when they ask. They helped me move. I think just the most important thing is I know they love me yeah. and they're there for me. And you know, it's my social circle before now was all married couples, mm-hmm. right? And it's a little awkward, I guess, to participate in married couple things now, but they yeah. still invite me. Oh, that's and awesome. And I don't feel weird when I'm with them. I, yeah. They, I just feel like I'm part of the group. So that's a, definitely a blessing that my friends are still my friends. Yeah. And they're still there for you. Yeah. I was thinking today, what is the value to me of having this change in my life? One thing is when I was married, my husband was very social and he talked a lot and I was usually listening to the conversation. And now he's not there to take up that space. And people are actually getting to know me more because mm-hmm. I participate more in conversations and I have more opportunity to get to know people. 
And that's a blessing in my life. Another thing I thought of is if I end up having another relationship, how wonderful would it be to have two amazing men to spend my life with, with two different paths, two different sets of things we like to do or places we like to go or sets of experiences. Mm -hmm. It's almost like having double opportunity for different things in my life. Two love stories, right? Yeah, maybe that maybe. would be a blessing. Because I was on one path, and mm -hmm. it probably would have just kept going at the similar pace, similar outcome. You know, my life would have remained maybe kind of stable, which would be wonderful. But maybe it would be really cool to have a completely different path also. Yeah. But I will still have two different phases of my life regardless. Mm -hmm. Yes. Of one phase that was along a certain path, and I'll have mm -hmm. a second phase on a different path. Mm -hmm. And it just broadens my horizons broadens yeah. my set of experiences in this life. And, you know, we have noticed that you've become more social. My mom and I, <laughs> we were talking at dinner one night. And of course, we were talking about your shoes because you always have the oh, cutest yes. shoes. <laughs> the cutest shoes. And my mom was like, have you noticed she's like out talking to people? I see her all the time. I'm like, I know. She's just blossoming. I love it. <laughs> So, maybe it's a blessing yeah. that came from my trial. Maybe it is. And we were just like, we just love Teresa. We just think Aww. she's so fabulous. <laughs> so you are a topic of conversation at our house. We talk about how amazing you are Aww, and thank you. how much we love you. Um, okay. So is there anything else that we should add? So I was talking about span expanding my horizons. Mm -hmm. My path changed. So before Chris died, I was in Young Women's for five years. And now, since then, I have had... A bunch more callings. So I've been Relief Society teacher, Sunbeam teacher, Valiant teacher. Wow. Activity Days leader uh, and State Public Affairs secretary. Yeah. Five different things in a year and a half <laughs> versus one thing in five years yeah. before. That is, that's like a whole lot of different hats you get to yeah. try on. <laughs> <laughs> and Sunbeam teacher, I'm like, whoa. That was an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> that is an adventure for anybody. <laughs> That's amazing. And all these experiences all piled on all at once. Mm -hmm. Maybe Heavenly Father is trying to get me to figure out what I want to do next. There's one thing I was looking at, you know, in this scripture this week, because, you know, it also talks about the Savior's mercy. Um, you know, and it goes into a little bit further in John 8. It talks about the story of the woman taking adultery and the Savior's mercy towards her. But I think we see the Savior's mercy in our lives in lots of different ways. Um, and I know we talked about like some of the tender mercies and some of the love that you've seen in your life. Are there any other ways that you've seen mercy in your life? You know, even when Chris was here or since Chris has passed away or... So right after Chris passed, when I went to church, uh, sitting in sacrament meeting, especially during the sacrament, mm -hmm. I would feel this overwhelming feeling of love and I would just sit there and cry. And I felt such a safe place to cry. And I felt like it was a good thing to uh, feel emotion, and I have, don't really cry very often, but mm -hmm. I did then. But I thought it was wonderful to have that feeling from Heavenly Father that he, mm -hmm. he loves me and I, you know, my gratitude for the atonement. So let, letting me feel the emotions, I guess, was the mercy at the right time and the right place. Yeah, I, I don't beautiful. cry during the sacrament as much anymore, but for mm -hmm. those first few weeks, every Sunday, I just felt this such a strong emotion and feeling mm -hmm. and gratitude. And it wasn't crying because I'm sad. It was crying because I felt something, you know. I felt the spirit, and it was wonderful. So after the first time I went to the temple mm -hmm. after Chris passed away, 
I, when I got to the celestial room, I was like all nervous, like what's going to happen now? Yeah. You know, there's so many stories about when you go to the temple, do you feel your husband's spirit Mm -hmm. or, you know, do you get some confirmation? And the only thing I felt, but it was overwhelming, Mm -hmm. was love. And I cried and I could not stop crying. And I just kept, you know, some lady who didn't even know me came over and gave me a hug in the celestial room. (laughs) (laughs) Which were all family in the celestial rooms. That's perfect. And then I left and I went into the the dressing room and more of my friends were there waiting for me. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I saw them, I just started crying again. That I'm not, like I said, I'm not a crier. Mm -hmm. But I definitely felt the love there. That. I've been back a few other times and I that mm-hmm. haven't had the same experience. But that first time, mm-hmm. it was for sure. I want you to know everything's going to be okay. You're okay. I love you. It was wonderful. Okay, you guys know I like to end with those interviews. I don't want to add any, or take away anything from those wonderful testimonies. So um, thanks to Teresa for coming on and kind of sharing her testimony through her trials. And um, I really, really loved this this reading this week, and I'm glad I got to share it with you. There were some great stories, some great cultural references, some great symbolism, just amazing stuff all the way around. So I really enjoyed it. I hope you guys did too. All right, have a great week. You know, let your light shine. And keep reading. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash thesaviorsaid. Have a question or comment? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.